Hi, I'm Billy Glosson, lead pastor of Coram Deo Church in Morganton, North Carolina, and you're listening to the Coram Deo Podcast, a place to engage with sermons, devotionals, prayer, and everything else we're doing at Coram Deo. Thanks for listening. This is Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Hear the word of the Lord. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Uh, This time I'm going to have Josh Matica come up and pray for him before he leads us in digging a little deeper into this word this morning. God, you are awesome, and you give us grace where we don't deserve it. And you give us another year to just continue to press in and and look for you and find you. Um, And you're good to us, and you give us more than we deserve. And I just ask that you would let the spirit of your grace fill this place, and that you would fill Josh's heart and his mind and his voice with just the reminders of what you have for us and how it's better than what we tell ourselves we need or what we tell ourselves we can do, that this would just be a message of your grace and your love for your people, and that we would all hear it, and that Josh would just be a faithful steward of what you've given him to share with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jen. All right. Good morning, everyone. Happy New Year. I hope that the 2022, at least the first nine or ten days of it or so, have been um, restful. Who, who's getting much rest nowadays, right? Um, I hope that, like Jen said, you're being able to keep up with all your New Year's resolutions, or if those are too stressful for you, that you're finding peace in a lack of resolutions. I know I've had years like that where I'm like, I need to not set so many goals for myself this year. I just need to like live my life, right? I hope that year, whatever it is that you're starting the New Year off with some peace. Um, today we're going to be closing out this little quick two-part series that we're starting the year with, A Quorum Deo Life, um, that is a life lived before the face of God, in the presence of God, like Jen talked about just a few minutes ago. And we're going to talk about how that life is a life defined by hospitality. Now, hospitality can be something of a cliched term, right? Especially here in the South, right? We're all supposed to be known down here for our Southern hospitality, And I've experienced a lot of genuine moments of that since I moved to the South, but when I hear the word hospitality, there's one story that sticks out in my life, and it comes from a time when I was living back in Missouri. Um, At this point in my life, my wife Catherine and I, we had just gotten married. We were attending Karis Church in Columbia, Missouri. It's one of our sending churches here at Coramdale, and we were really blessed there with this vibrant, rich community full of diverse peoples in different stages of life. And I remember specifically at this time, right after we got married, uh, Catherine and I befriended a couple that lived there, and we decided that as part of, you know, the liturgy of community, we were like, we're going to have dinner with y'all once a month. We're going to schedule it out in advance. Um, Catherine had particularly bonded with the youngest child of this family, had gone with a trip with them at some point, and their mom, and we just decided we want to invest in these people, and we know they want to invest in us. Now, I don't know how y'all get prepared Uh, when you have people over for dinner, right? You're probably a little bit like me. You know, I want to go out. 
I want to get some good food, maybe like a really nice piece of meat. I want to put it in a tasty marinade, throw on a good record, get something really nice to drink. You want guests to come to a well-prepared, inviting, warm home, right? And I remember one of the last times that Catherine and I ever went to this couple's house right before we moved to Morganton. You know, we got to their house, we knocked on the door, and usually at this point, one of their kids would open the door for us. They would say, hey guys, welcome. They would tell us where to put their shoes, and immediately we would jump into a game of like playing pretend with them, right? Um, This time, we walked up, we knocked on the door, and we heard a bunch of screaming, inside and someone said hey come in um at the time i didn't think much of it you know if you have kids you understand things get a little kooky uh but we opened the door we stepped inside and the very first thing that i saw there's this long hallway that leads um to their living room from their front door and the very first thing i saw was just a bare toddler butt just full moon no clouds in the sky just sitting right there and at this point one of the parents pokes their head around the corner, and they're like, oh, what's up, guys? Come on in. We came in, toys everywhere, kids are screaming, naked children. Um, Nothing about this situation said, this is a put-together household ready for a dinner party. But you know, I think back on that night, and even at that point um, in time, I felt grateful, incredibly grateful, and it really stirred my heart with love for these friends of ours Because in the midst of the chaos of that night, because clearly they were having a bit of a chaotic night, um, I felt something that you don't always feel when you share a meal with someone, when you go into someone's home, and that was just genuine comfort and welcome. You know, these friends of ours were welcoming us, for better and for worse, right, into the chaos of their lives. You know, they didn't feel like they needed to have the kids in perfect order and have the house all cleaned up. They trusted us to come into their home just as it was, and share a moment of life with them, just as they were. It felt really more inviting than a lot of other dinner parties I've ever been to. This morning, we're going to be looking at that sort of hospitality and how it's found in the heart of Jesus. And, and I'll say this right off the top. When you hear the idea of like a, hospitable, a sermon about hospitality, you may think, oh, he's going to give us like three keys on how to be more hospitable to the people around us. And you know, honestly, when I started prepping this sermon, that's what I thought this was going to be. But this verse, I think, looks at something a little different. It looks at the hospitality in Jesus' heart. And what we're going to see today in Matthew 11 is how Jesus invites us, messy, broken people that we are, into the kingdom of God. And how that invitation reorients the way that we look at the world around us, and even how we view ourselves. Specifically, we're going to see today how Jesus invites us to give up the burden of religion and offers us freedom and rest in his kingdom. Say that again. We'll see how Jesus invites us to give up the burden of religion, that is legalism. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, do get up goodism. And he offers us freedom and rest in his kingdom. We're going to look at that by asking ourselves two questions this morning. And the first question is this. How is Jesus hospitable, right? That's just an assumption that I'm making off the top, but how is Jesus hospitable to us? One way that we see that Jesus is hospitable is that he invites us with a gentle and lowly heart. And yes, I will just get this out of the way. I am going to be quoting from Dane Ortland's Gentle and Lowly. You heard us talk about it so much this past fall. We've still got plenty of copies in the resource table at the back. There's your plug for the day. I will move on. As a writer, 
I love Matthew 11, this passage in Matthew 11, and how the whole chapter really is structured to end with this somewhat shocking declaration that Jesus makes that he is gentle and that he is lowly. The passage starts, uh, we see that John the Baptist is in jail at this point, and he sends his disciples to Jesus to check and see, like, hey, you know, Jesus, like, John, he's our guy, he's been talking to us a lot about this person that's going to come after him. Are you it? Because even he's kind of wondering at this point, are you the guy that he's been talking about? And Jesus answers their questions, and he offers a glowing tribute to John, even in this verse. In verse 11, he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Even here, however, in the second part of this verse, he starts to set the stage for this gentle and lowly decoration. He continues in verse 11, Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. He's already subverting the listeners and the readers' ideas of greatness by elevating the least over the greatest. Later in this passage, though, Jesus starts to sound more uh, kingly, more, more generally. He, he sounds like a conquering leader that everyone wants him to be at this point, right? Let's uh, read quickly in verses 21 through 24, and they're going to be on the screen for you. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Yet I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. That's a king, right? That's a leader that you can get behind. Judgment, justice, righteousness, boom, boom, boom. That's what we want out of our leaders. We want strong people who are going to lead us into new frontiers. We want a savior who kicks butt, chews bubblegum. He's all out of bubblegum, right? He rights wrongs. He slays the wicked. He rids the earth of anyone and everyone who stands opposed to him and his people. But we can't ignore the fact that Jesus chooses to conclude this message with something different. It's not in mighty words of strength. It's in humility. Learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher and theologian, commenting on this verse, points out that in all four gospel accounts of Jesus' life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? This is the only time where Jesus tells us about his own heart, where he peels back the curtain, reveals something about the deepest part of himself. Jesus loved to use stories and metaphors and parables when he was teaching and preaching. But in this one instance, he peels back the curtain and he tells us what exists in the deepest recesses of his soul. And there's no misconstruing it. He is gentle and he is lowly. Speaking about these two words in, in the book that I mentioned earlier, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortland, he has quite a bit to say. I think there's like three or four chapters just about these two words, but we're going to narrow it down to these two quotes. One about gentle, one about lowly first one, it'll be up on the screen. The Greek word translated gentle here occurs just three times in the New Testament. In the first beatitude, that the meek will inherit the earth. The second, in the prophecy that Jesus is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey. 
and in Peter's encouragement to wives to nurture more than anything else the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Meek, humble, gentle. Jesus is not trigger-happy, not harsh, reactionary, easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Dane Orland also writes about the word lowly, and he says this, The point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites. No hoops to jump through. In a passage where Jesus both exalts the greatness of this prophet and calls judgment down on unrepentant cities, right? Cities that heard the gospel and rejected it. He chooses to drive his point home with a posture of lowliness, of accessibility. Jesus is telling us about himself here, that his heart of hearts is with us as sinners and broken people. And it's here that we can see a second way that Jesus is hospitable. His offer of rest, his invitation, extends to everyone. Look in verse 28, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I remember when I was reading this passage, and I was kind of preparing for this sermon, I was having Catherine, my wife, just kind of read some different translations to me so I could hear them and hear some of the differences of language that were going on. Um, and there are a few ways to interpret the original Greek here. There, there are a few popular ones, specifically um, one of the most popular ways agrees with the English Standard Version, which we read from a lot here at Coram Deo. It translates this to all who are labor and are heavy, all who labor and are heavy laden. Some also say all who are weary and burdened, right? It's a little more specific. Um, I really like, though, the way that Eugene Peterson gets the heart of this verse in his translation, The Message. And to be clear, The Message is not exactly a, a studyable translation that we recommend a lot, but, but The Message is a really wonderful way to... It, it makes the Bible a lot more readable sometimes. It doesn't focus so much on word-to-word translation as much as it is like, what, what is the point of what is trying to be said here? Eugene Peterson says this, Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me, get away with me, and you will cover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. I think verse 28 here is an especially poignant verse for the beginning of the year. It's already been mentioned several times from the pulpit here today, right? This is a time when a lot of people, or maybe a few weeks ago, I should say, are setting and trying to keep up with resolutions and goals that they've set for themselves. You know, some people want to read a certain number of books, or they want to lose a certain amount of weight, or, you know, one thing that I've tried to do is, like, I want to put my phone away after a certain time of day. Don't think I've done that any of the first eight days of the year so far. Um, The new year offers us this automatic opportunity for self-reflection, analysis. It's a natural point to kind of reset, you know, as the calendar turns over. We refocus ourselves, like, who do I want to be? What are the things that I want to do? There was a time in my life, you know, when I would have looked at that and said, ah, it's not, doesn't really mean anything. Just kind of embrace cynicism. It's just another day, right? But I think it does make a ton of sense. We all want to work hard. We want to break our bad habits. We want to try new things. There's nothing wrong with wanting to set goals and resolutions for yourself. The problem, though, comes when 
trying harder to better ourselves or elevating to some higher plane of living or some standard, it becomes how we measure our worth. The reality is we're all going to mess things up. We're going to stumble. And sometimes we're just going to quit. Just right out, we're going to quit. Uh, back at the beginning of 2020, uh, there's a sport and exercise brand called Strava. And they'd released some research that they had been doing over the past several years with, a, with an audience of 800 million people. They studied that many people and in, in the goals and resolutions they'd been setting themselves at the beginning of the year. They found that most people gave up on their resolutions by January 19th. It's 19 days into the year. Uh, they even ended up deeming that day in this study Quitter's Day. So in nine days, happy Quitter's Day, y'all. Um, you know, it's one thing to flake on your exercise or your diet goals, or maybe it's like, oh, I'm not at the pace I want to be with, like, reading or whatever. But what about the first time you go for a week without reading in your new devotional, that fancy new journal that we saw that video of? What happens when you go for the first time and you're like, man, it's been three weeks since I read that? Or when you look up in mid-March and you can't even remember where that reading plan is. You're like, I can't even remember how it looks, what it's structured like. Um, it feels bad, right? It's hard not to look at those moments in our lives and to kind of, in the moment, be like, you know what, I can't do it. I'm not good enough. Maybe I shouldn't even bother trying anymore. The good news of this passage is that if you feel this way, if you've ever felt this way, the invitation to come to Jesus and to let him give you rest, it is specifically for you. It is specifically for everyone who has been burned out by the burden of legalism, of achieving holiness or self-actualization just by trying harder. The hope of the gospel, the eternal rest that is offered in the incarnate life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is for all who labor and are heavy laden. Your failures, whenever they happen, they don't decrease your worth or say anything about where you are in the journey or what the Spirit is doing within you. Guys, they should serve to confirm that Jesus' invitation is for you, that you are welcome. If we stopped and thought about it for a moment, I think we would probably realize that everyone, everyone in this room, everyone in our city, everyone in the world, at some point deep within their soul realizes that trying harder, doing better, lifting yourself up is not the answer. We're never going to achieve some level of perfect self-awareness or become exactly the person that we want to be right? There's always going to be something to change or to tinker with. And while not everybody will accept this invitation, the invitation is extended to all. Are you tired? Are you worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. So we know that Jesus is gentle and lowly. He says it. And that this invitation, this hospitality that he extends to us is extended to everyone who would accept it. But what happens after that, right? What happens after you come to a place where you can admit, yes, that's me. I'm worn out. I need rest. I need to learn from Jesus. I need to take on this yoke. Well, in the second part of this passage, we're going to see that Jesus' hospitality, we're going to see what it means for us in two distinct ways. First way is that we are called to learn from him and extend that hospitality to others. That is, to everyone. And second, we learn that this hospitality invites us to be who God has created us to be. We're going to start with that first one, 
uh, that we are called to learn from Jesus and extend his hospitality to others. Let's go back to verse 29 in Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What we see here before we get to the part where Jesus um, offers that glimpse into himself, right, that he is gentle and lowly, we see this two-part invitation. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And we're going to discuss yokes and kind of what yokes mean and what the metaphor that Jesus talked. We're going to talk about that here in a minute. But right now I want to focus on this invitation of learn from me. It would be easy, I think, to generalize this, right, in the sense that we as believers should always be learning about Jesus, right? That just feels like kind of baked into the Christian life. What should our goal be other than to glorify God the Father by imitating the attitudes, the postures, and really the life of Jesus, to know more about him, to love him more every day? We have to consider, though, the context of this invitation, what it stands against. When Jesus invites us to learn from him, what exactly do we need to learn based on this verse? What do we see in verse 28, right? We see that Jesus invites those who, are, who labor and are heavy laden. And we just discussed how everyone feels that way on some level, right? Everyone feels some pressure to better themselves, to become the best version of themselves physically, spiritually, mentally. If you're a woodworker or a teacher or a social worker or a brewer, we know some brewers in this congregation, you want to get better at all of those things, right? You don't get to a point ever where you're like, I'm the best version of myself that I'm ever going to be, and I can stop here, right? No, we're always striving to be better. We're always striving to become better at the things we care about. It can be anything from being a parent to being a sibling. We all feel that pressure. And it strikes me that in this moment, Jesus has issued this open invitation just before revealing the deepest part of himself, right? That he is gentle and lowly. It's almost as if Jesus is trying to foster a moment of vulnerability with those who are listening. It's like he's saying this. It's like he's saying, I see that each of you deep down are tired. You're trying to make yourself better. You're trying to earn this salvation. And I want you to know that I see that in you. And I see how tired it makes you. And I want you to know that in the deepest part of my soul, all I want to do is to give you freedom from that pursuit. I just want you to rest. Jesus cuts to the heart of his listeners by identifying one of the fundamental urges we have as people. This urge to be better, something that I don't even know that we can explain to ourselves sometime. What if, as recipients of this invitation, as recipients of his rest and his grace, what if we also chose to see people this way? What if we look deeper in our everyday interactions? Because we tend to get hung up in, you know, skin-deep stuff, right? Or maybe even slightly below skin-deep. Like, when I see someone I disagree with on, I don't know, whatever it could be, I'm like, okay, I see that person, and I know that they're a good parent, and they work hard, they sacrifice for their family, but I just can't get over that one habit that really annoys me, or that one political view that they have, right? Or maybe it's even shallower than that. Maybe you're like, I know I'm supposed to love that person because they're my brother, my sister in Christ, I know they're made in the image of God and all that, but like the way they talk about themselves, the way they carry themselves around other people, I can't get it over how annoying and self-righteous that is, right? What if we push past these hang-ups, even the ones that may seem valid or we might be able to justify in our own hearts? What if we push past those things and saw the person striving 
underneath? What if, like Jesus, we saw that everyone is laboring, everyone is burdened and heavy laden, and everyone needs rest that only Jesus can provide? Would it change the way that we look at each other? Would it stir our hearts to the same warmth and hospitality that stirred our saviors this moment? And I work a desk job during the week, and so I do a lot of projects that allow me to just, like, plug in my headphones and listen to podcasts and audiobooks. That's what I spend a lot of time listening to at work. And I started this year by reading the book Uncommon Ground by Tim Keller. Uh, a lot of you are familiar with Tim Keller, pastor. And John Inazu, who is, um, he's a professor at Washington University in St. Louis. And what these two did in their book Uncommon Ground is they interviewed a number of Christians across different uh, occupations and spheres of life, people you would have heard of, um, like there's writers, there's rappers, there's a rapper in there, yes, doctors, lawyers, theologians, and they got their perspective on their jobs, their passions, how they connect them with God, how they connect them with the world around them, specifically with this idea of trying to find a way that we can live alongside people that we disagree with, or maybe that we just don't see eye to eye with, including non-Christians. One of the people that they spoke to, his name is Dr. Warren Kinghorn. He's a psychologist who works at the Duke Divinity School up in uh, Durham, North Carolina. In his chapter, Kinghorn talks about how he spent most of his career with this unflappable belief in the, in like the power and the truth of medicine, right? Everything that he'd been taught in school. As he progressed, though, what he began to see was that a lot of times treating an illness that someone had didn't always get to the heart of what they needed. Yes, they needed to get better. They did need to treat the sickness, but there was something deeper, too. Maybe they needed a community. Maybe they needed a home. Or maybe they just needed a job. He says that as he began to see these deeper needs, he started viewing his patients not just as patients, but as wayfarers in life. And he says this about um, this, this kind of realization that he came to. He said, approaching my patients as wayfarers, and seeing myself as a wayfarer privileged to walk with them forces me out of a posture of control and expertise and into a posture of humility and respect, attending as closely as I can to their stories rather than their symptoms alone. This is exactly what Jesus is doing in this passage. He is seeing past the symptoms, past the stuff that would turn other people away, and he's tuning in on people's stories on their deepest needs and their fears and their desires. What would our city look like if the church took that posture? What if instead of seeing people that we dislike or maybe even people that we don't trust, what would, we, what would our city look like if we began to see people who have stories, who are tired, who are burned out of trying to be better, of trying harder? And what if we invited them to come with us to sit at the feet of Jesus, to find rest in him. Maybe the most direct way of asking it is something that Billy, our lead pastor, Billy Glosson, says from time to time. If Coram, Deo, if Coram Deo closed her doors tomorrow, would the city notice? Would they care? Finally, we're going to see that Jesus' hospitality invites us to be who God created us to be. And we see this in verse 30 where Jesus concludes the passage with a simple explanation, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I mentioned earlier that we're going to discuss kind of this concept of yokes, what that, happened, what that means, and that's where this is happening. If you don't already know, a yoke 
would be um, sort of a heavy wooden, I guess a frame would be the right word for it, that farmers would attach to their oxen whenever they would plow their fields. That would attach to like the cart or whatever they were using. I'm not an I'm not a farmer. I apologize. Uh, the yoke would sit on the back of the oxen's neck, and it would attach two animals together so that they could walk in step with each other toward a common goal of plowing the field. Now, when Jesus talks about his yoke being easy here, we need to realize that he's likely speaking to his audience's familiarity with who he was as a carpenter, right? Jesus, before he went into ministry, was a carpenter by trade. That's what his father did. We don't know specifically if Jesus was a carpenter who made yokes for oxen. There's some kind of speculative theory that maybe he might have been, but there's nothing that we know for sure. But it would be known to his audience that yokes weren't just made, like, in a factory in bulk. They, like, threw them out the door so they could just slap on any old pair of oxen, right? Instead, carpenters fitted yokes to each specific animal. The yoke would be placed on the animal, and then the maker would take the yoke back, and they would kind of work on it so that it would fit more comfortably, so that the animal, the oxen, would be able to do its work without an uncomfortable burden sitting on its shoulders. We should also recognize here that the word easy can be translated a little more specifically. Another way to translate this Greek word, it's called krestos, uh, would be well-fitting. So Jesus' yoke is well-fitting. Jesus is saying that his yoke is easy. He's saying that it's a yoke that fits us. It is not made haphazardly. It is tailored to each person. It's a kind burden that allows us to do the work of living our lives without unnecessary weight of legalism or of trying harder. And another thing that's interesting about the concept of what a yoke is, is that yokes were not just made for one animal. They were made for a pair of animals. And it was general practice that when a farmer would get these pair of animals together, they would, um, they would partner them like this. One animal would be inexperienced. He'd be new. He'd be kind of trying to break this animal in. And he would be paired with a leading animal who would show this other animal the way, teach them to follow the commands of the farmer, how to do the work. You're starting to pick up what Jesus is saying here. This metaphor of this easy, light yoke that Jesus offers us is that he's offering us a life that fits us. It's tailored to who we were created to be as people made in the image of God. In doing so, Jesus doesn't leave us to figure things out on our own either, but he lovingly guides us. He instructs us to listen to the Father's commands and to learn his voice. The next time you find yourself in a moment of frustration or guilt, or shame because maybe something you didn't do correctly, or maybe you like dis- deliberately like didn't do something that you knew you were supposed to do, right? Maybe it was at your job or with your family, maybe just with a close friend. Um, you're feeling the weight of sin and failure sitting on your shoulders. You say, how could I mess this up this badly? Like, how could anyone forgive this sort of mistake? Remember in that moment, Christian, that doing better, not messing up, that's not the answer here. That's a yoke that does not fit you. It is burdensome. It weighs you down, and you could never carry it alone. Instead, turn to Jesus. Be in prayer or scripture and community, and remember that his yoke fits you. He made it just for you. He's inviting you into this life that was who you were supposed to be when God created you. It was made for you so that you could walk with him, follow in his steps, 
and learn to know and love the guidance of God the Father. As we close today, um, I'm going to take a step back to just a few weeks ago. Uh, One thing that I like to do, personally, at the end of every year, um, is put together a blog post about my favorite movies of the year. Yeah, you didn't think you were going to get through a Josh sermon without hearing about movies. Um, And this past year, my favorite movie was this small independent drama uh, called Pick. Maybe you've heard of it, uh, maybe you haven't. It stars Nicolas Cage, someone who I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with. Um, he's this isolated chef, kind of living alone in the woods, and he owns a truffle hunting pig. Truffles, you know, like little mushrooms, taste really good, very, very expensive. And in the movie, this pig gets stolen, and Nick Cage has to go get this pig back. If you know anything about movies or you've paid any attention to the types of movies that he makes, you know that this is a premise that's kind of set up that's going to be really wacky and potentially very violent as he, like, fights his way to get this animal back. One thing I love about this movie, though, is that it chooses something different, and it actually subverts this idea of, like, a revenge movie. Of course, Nick Cage's character, we'll call him Rob, because that's his name, uh, he goes on a torrid hunt for this animal, But in the moments where his character could, you know, go on a rampage or, like, force someone up against the wall and threaten them, um, the movie settles for something a little quieter, a little gentler. There's this moment, this this scene where Rob is in this super fancy, uh, somewhat pretentious restaurant, and he asks to see the chef, presumably because this guy would know something about where his pig is, right? Remember, this is a movie about a missing pig. The guy comes out, and he's trying to schmooze. He's trying to schmooze Rob. He's like, oh, try this nice wine. Try this nice meal that I prepared for you. He's trying to get him to go away. He's like, hey, you don't need to ask any more about this. But Rob stops him in this moment and reveals that the chef, the guy that's talking to him, used to work for him in a restaurant that he owned. Um, and he fired him <laughs> at one point. Before he did, he sat him down, and he said, what do you want to do with your life? What do you want to cook? And then he points to this gross-looking food in front of him. I think it's like blueberry foam on, I don't know. It was really weird looking. And he points to everybody in the, in the restaurant. It's, again, a pretentious atmosphere. And he asks him this. Why do you care about these people? They don't care about you. Not one of them. They don't even know you. Every day, you'll wake up, and there will be less of you. You live your life for them. They don't even see you. You don't even see yourself. I was reminded of this quote in the movie because I think in that moment, the common grace of God was showing itself. It was unintentionally speaking to the way that Jesus sees us. You know, when we're trying to put on airs, when we're trying to be like, look at all the things I've done for you. Look how I've tried harder. Jesus sees us striving. He sees us trying to impress others, impress ourselves with the ways that we can do better, get better, be healthier, be more spiritual, be a better Christian, mother, husband, patriot. Jesus sees all of that. And he sees how tired it makes us. How empty those pursuits are. And in response, he lovingly offers us a better way. He tells us that he is kind, and he is lowly, and he is open to us, just as we are. He invites us and everyone who is tired of this way of living to put on a yoke that fits us to live a life that we were created to live. This is hospitality. This is a truly hospitable life, one that sees the longings and the weariness of souls. A life defined by hospitality sees the things 
around them and invites people to the only place that they can get the rest that they need, which is at the feet of Jesus. Let's pray. God, we confess that we come today tired, burdened, and worn out of trying, (laughs) for lack of a better word. Um, Like I said, the new year offers us this, this point to refocus our lives, but oftentimes we just think about all the things that we could do better, all the ways that we could be better, all the bad habits that we could give up, all the other things that we could do that would make us happy with ourselves, that would make you happy with us, God. But in this passage, we see that your heart is reflected in Jesus, knows that that is not good enough, and invites us to something better, something that offers us not only the possibility of knowing you deeply and, and, and enjoying you and enjoying this life that you've created for us, but God, one that offers us rest. God, we all need rest. I pray that today, we would be vulnerable enough to admit the ways that we need to rest. That we would offer ourselves, even in those, even in, even in our tired, weary states to you, and that we would see your invitation. We would see your hospitality to us. And that as we enjoy that, as we enjoy that rest and that grace, that it would change our hearts. It would mold us into who you have created us to be that that hospitality would extend to others, that we would always see that only you can offer rest to anyone and everyone who needs it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the Quorum Deo podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or our website, quorumdeonc.com. You can follow us on Facebook and Instagram for a bigger picture inside the life of the church. Grace and peace be with you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ.